All right. Well, as we continue our worship in the word this morning, uh, let's go ahead and take a moment to bow in prayer together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful to fellowship uh, with your people this morning uh, to exalt the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, and to be reminded of the true reason for this season, our celebration of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Uh, Father, as we transition our focus off of worshiping you in song to worshiping you in the word, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you have for us, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ. We ask that you would make us, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, uh, this past Friday, our family, the day after Thanksgiving, was heading back from a beautiful sunny day out on the coast of Oregon. And on our way home, uh, as we were enjoying the beauty of God's creation, we decided to flip on the radio, and sure enough, we began to hear some familiar songs that we haven't heard in a while, the songs of Christmas. And how many of you know that one of the things that make this season of the year quite memorable is often the music, as those songs are played year after year, as those hymns within the church are sung year after year. Sometimes we find ourselves singing very songs that are so familiar that we don't take time to really reflect on the content of the song. But for whatever reason, one of the songs that came on the radio as we were enjoying God's creation was Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And as I was listening to the lyrics of this song, I could not help but consider the beauty and the mystery of the coming of Christ as a babe in a manger. I mean, just consider the beginning lyrics of the first stanza. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. And that's just the beginning of the first stanza. You start getting into the second stanza, you go into some deep thought, theological truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it causes you, as you consider the content of those lyrics concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, to stand back in awe and wonder at the beauty and the mystery of the coming of Christ who is born in the manger, who would grow up to die on a cross for our sins. You know, I'm reminded this morning the reason why the, mis the beauty and the mystery of the coming of Christ is present in the songs that we sing around this season is because of the gospel that we believe. And this morning, we're continuing in the letter of Galatians where we continue to hear about the one true gospel both declared and defended by the Apostle Paul. And that's where I'd invite you this morning in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 10 to 14 together. You know, as you head there in your Bibles, Paul is writing these believers, and what he's doing is he's calling these Galatian believers throughout these churches in the region of Galatia back to the truth, beginning in chapter 3. If you were with us in the first nine verses of chapter 3, Paul declared, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He reminded them of the foolishness of straying from the truth. You see, false teachers had come in, and they were leading these Galatians astray. 
They said that faith in Jesus was important, but they said that faith in Jesus was not, not enough. You had to be circumcised. You had to come in, obe in obedience to the Mosaic law. And Paul, in the first nine verses of chapter three, calls them back to the truth. He reminded them the foolishness of straying. He, he reminded them that the true gospel by grace through faith was the means by which they had received the Holy Spirit. He reminded them that, that, that the true gospel by grace through faith was the means by which they were being sanctified. He told them, how foolish is it to having begun in the spirit to be perfected or reach spiritual maturity in the flesh? Foolishness. Paul reminded that, us that the true gospel uh, was the reason the believers were willing to suffer for the cause of Christ and that the true gospel was confirmed both through miracles that God did through these witnesses and also the gospel was confirmed through the scriptures going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 that told us through, the, through Abraham and his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed and that would ultimately re be realized for the Jew and Gentile alike in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now, as he continues to call these believers back to the truth of the one true gospel, Paul now reminds them of two truths about the one true gospel that we're going to consider this morning. And I'd like to suggest these are two truths as we reflect on them. That as we consider them, cause us to stand back in awe and wonder at the beauty and the mystery of the coming of Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, who was born in a manger, but would grow up to die on a cross. What are these truths? Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 and following. For as many as are of the works of the law... Are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, we get to consider two truths about the one true gospel of Christ. The first truth we're going to read about in verses 10 to 12 is the truth that the good news of the gospel is an invitation to escape the curse. Now let me say that again. The good news of the gospel is an invitation to escape the curse of the law. Paul puts it this way in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now in verse 13, we'll learn that's described as the curse of the law, which Christ has redeemed us from. But I want to ask us a series of questions as we consider this first truth. The first question is, who are we referring to when we're talking about those who are under the curse? The text tells us, um, uh, for as many as are of the works of the law. So the question is presented to us, who are these who are of the works of the law? To be of the works of the law referred to those who 
um, have trusted in anything other than or, a, or in addition to the finished work of Christ on the cross as a means of salvation. Those who uh, are of the works of the law are those who have trusted in anything other than or in addition to Christ alone and his finished work, of Christ, work on the cross that he has accomplished on our behalf. In Paul's day, those who were those who were, were of the works of the law were these false teachers. They were known as Judaizers. These Judaizers and all those whom they led astray were those of the works of the law. They believed that they could be placed in a right standing before God and find acceptance before God in regards to being justified and being, receiving salvation, uh, not just by placing their faith in Jesus, but adding to it. They believed that faith in Jesus, as we've said week after week, is important, but they said that faith in Jesus was not enough. They were not just trusting in Christ's death on the cross to pay for their sins. They said they were also trusting in their religious activity. They were trusting in their circumcision. They were trusting in their ability to obey the Mosaic law. And so these are individuals who are of the works of the law. And Paul says they are under the curse of the law. Uh, well, who are those who are under the curse of the law today? Who are those who are of the works of the law today? Anyone who trusts in anything or uh, who trusts in anything other than or in addition to Christ alone and his finished work on the cross. And so as you and I have opportunities to have conversations with those who are unbelievers, perhaps outside of the church, um, a question that we might ask them among family, friends, co-workers, acquaintances, is if you die today, you get to heaven and uh, you meet God and God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? There are a lot of folks as you have those conversations with who say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. And what those people are saying is I'm trusting in my own ability. They are saying I'm trusting in my own goodness. Now, the problem we're going to see in a moment is that no one good is good. Relatively speaking, you may think you are good in comparison to others. You don't steal, you don't lie, you don't cheat most of the time. But the reality is, uh, when it comes to who we measure our goodness by, it should not be others. It should be the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the one that we are to consider. And so, if, if, you, if you take a look at, at, at that question, who is righteous, the, the, the answer is, is no one. And so, some people that you talk to will say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. The reality is they're not. There's some in the church that you may have that conversation with. And they will say, yeah, I, I, I trust in, in Jesus, but they will, if you ask them the question, you die today, you get to heaven, why should God let you into, the, their, into, your, into his heaven? And how would you answer? Some would say, well, because I'm, I attend church regularly, or I'm a member of a church, or I observe the ordinance of the church. I've been baptized, or I uh, participate in the Lord's table. And this, so they will tell you, based on their religious activity, so they're not just trusting in Christ's death on the cross and Christ alone, they're adding to that. Now, we're reminded this morning, in light of the text that we're in, that if you have religion without a personal relationship with Jesus, your religion is empty this morning. It's useless. It's ineffective. If you have ritual, 
and you attend church regularly, you give of your tithes and offerings, you serve in the church, that will do nothing to contribute to your salvation if it's not grounded in a personal relationship with Jesus. And so the manner in which we are saved is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul reminds us, who are these individuals who uh, have, who are of the works of the law? They're anyone who is trusted in anything other than or added to the, the, the finished work of Christ on the cross. If you're not trusting in Christ in order to pay your debt for salvation, then you are under the curse. So the first question is, who are those who are under the curse? The second question is, what does it mean to be under the curse? Now, if you go back one verse um, to verse nine, you learn that the opposite of being under a curse is to be under the blessing of God. And who are those who are blessed? Well, in verse nine, it says, those who are of faith are blessed alongside of believing Abraham. You go back a couple more verses to verse seven, you learn that um, for Abraham, he believed God and what? He it was accounted to him as righteousness. So what does it mean to be blessed by God alongside of believing Abraham? It's to be justified by faith. When you put your faith in God and his word, and he declares you to be in a right standing before him, that is the moment that you are declared righteous. So to be under the blessing of God is to be in a right standing with God. To be under the curse of God is to be under the condemnation of God. Now we know that the Bible teaches in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, the penalty for our sin, for our unrighteous deeds, is death. Now, when you and I think of death, we often think of physical death. Death literally refers to separation. At physical death, your body is separated from your spirit. But when we're talking about Romans 6.23, the wages or the penalty of sin is death, we're talking about spiritual death. We're talking about an eternal separation between us and God forever and ever. The truth of the matter is, when you die, you don't just cease to exist or are reincarnated, as some people believe, but you either will spend an eternity with God and his people forever and ever, and that's heaven, or you will spend an eternity without God and his people forever and ever, that's hell. You will either enter into eternal life, having trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, or you will enter into an eternal death, eternally separated from God and his people forever and ever. So what does it mean to be under the curse? It means to, be, to stand condemned before a holy God. And all those who are trusting in their goodness, all those who are trusting in their religion and ritual, all those who are trusting in anything other than Christ alone and his finished work on the cross or seeking to add to his finished work uh, on the cross is under the curse of the law. And before we get to the good news that we're gonna talk about in verses 13 to 14 as we consider the second truth, we're reminded that we first fully have to consider the bad news of the text that we're reading about this morning that apart from Christ, all of us are under the curse. And the next question that we might ask is, well, how is it that seeming good religious people, even in the church, are still under the curse? 
You know, the Jews in their day, they didn't believe the Jewish people or the sons and daughters of Abraham were of the curse. They believed they were of the blessing. After all, they had received the Old Testament law and prophets. They were the ones who had received the promises of God. Those who were under the curse were the Gentiles, right? Those are the dirty dogs. Those are the ones who don't know the truth of the gospel. And Paul goes on to tell us why Jew and Gentile alike, regardless of the family or the tribe that you're born into, are all under the curse if you are of the works of the law. He quotes a text in Deuteronomy 27 to 27, 26, that says this in verse 10. It says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So this is the, the bad news. If you are of the works of the law and trusting in your own goodness, trusting in your religion or ritual in order to find acceptance before a holy God as a guilty sinner, the problem with pursuing that path is you've got to do so perfectly. If you are going to find acceptance before God, you have to obey the law perfectly. But like a chain, if you break one link within the chain, you've broken the chain. And it's the same thing with the law. You break one part of the law of God, you are a lawbreaker and are therefore under the curse of God. So it doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. The only thing you can trust in is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And the manner in which we are made right, justified before a holy God, is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Consider again... Deuteronomy that's quoted here, it says, cursed is everyone. You take a look at the original text here in the Greek and then the Hebrew, everyone means everyone. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are in the law. Uh, If I could bring you to some scriptures, James chapter two, verses 10 to 11 says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, He is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. James 3.2 says, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. None of us are perfect. All of us miss the mark. Relatively speaking, you may be pretty good, but our standard is not man. Our standard is God and his perfect righteousness. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a man on earth who does good and does not sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. It's an archery term. And so what we're reminded is, if you're going to travel the path of trying to earn your way into the favor of God in order to be made right before a holy God, there's no amount of good that you can do to cancel out the sin that you've done. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, that our our righteous deeds are like filthy rags corrupted by our sin and our unrighteousness. Can you imagine if I was cleaning the car outside, and this is an interesting time to clean your car, during this fall season, and I were cleaning the car, then I bring my dirty rag inside and say, hey, there's still some clean parts of this rag. I tell my wife that I start cleaning the kitchen table. She would be very upset with me. 
And that's what we try to do when we say, yeah, my righteous deeds are going to be enough to save me. And the reality is, it's just a filthy rag before God. What you need to do is exchange those filthy rags for a righteous robe. And you can do that by faith in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. Somebody might ask the question, well, if the law uh, cannot save us, what is it good for? Well, elsewhere in Romans, it tells us that the law has its benefits. The law reveals the righteousness of God, but also the law reveals the extent of our rebellious hearts. Let me read you Romans 7, 7 to 12. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Paul uses a double negative. May it never be. Meganoita. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetous unless the law said you shall not covet. And so the law is good in this sense. Morally speaking, it points out our deficiencies. Just as you take a look at in the mirror and you see your hair is out of place, you see your life is not aligned with the will of God or the word of God. Your thinking is out of alignment with the will of God and the word of God. Your relationships are out of alignment with the will of God and the word of God as you take a look at the law. But not only does it reveal our deficiencies and our desperate need for Christ, but it also reveals the extent of our rebellious hearts. Let me read this. Verse eight says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all kind of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying that when the law is read... It, 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 it reveals the extent of my rebellious heart because when somebody has a rule that says don't take any cookies from the cookie jar, guess what you're thinking? You want to take some cookies from the cookie jar. And that's what the law does to our flesh. It shows us the extent of our rebellious hearts. You know, uh, back in the summertime, we were checking out some waterfalls in Salem, and as we were walking around the different areas, um, I told my wife, I said, "Honey, I really want to go down the waterfall and touch it. <laughs> and as we were getting closer, there's a big sign that says, do not cross this line and go any further. And I can tell you what, I wanted to do it all the more. And my wife said, remember, you're a pastor. And I said, okay, <laughs> there might be folks watching. But it demonstrates that the law reveals the extent of our rebellious hearts. When, it, when it, it says do this or don't do that, our flesh wants to go the opposite. Well, we're reminded none of us fulfill the law perfectly. We all miss the mark. And therefore, apart from Christ, we are, are all under the curse of the law. So Paul uses this first text. It's in De Deuteronomy 27 to Deuteronomy 27 to 26 to tell that. And then he continues adding scripture. Don't you love it? Scripture after scripture. He then quotes Hebrews chapter two, verse four and verse 11, reminding us of our need to be delivered from the curse of the law. Verse 11 says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared to be in a right standing before God. It's a, a term used in the court of the law. You are either declared innocent or guilty, justified or condemned. And so Paul says, based on Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, you cannot be declared righteous by 
the law, by your obedience to the law. Why? Because none of us obey it perfectly. All of us miss the mark. But as Habakkuk declares, he declares in chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, he says, the just shall live by faith. Now, that text is significant because it's quoted in three different texts in the New Testament, in Romans, in Hebrews, and in Galatians, because it reminds us of the importance of how we are saved, how we are justified. We are not justified by the works of the law or obedience to it. We are justified by our faith in Christ alone. And so it says, the just, the just refers to the righteous. The just refers to those who are declared to be in a right standing with God by faith shall live. And so when we're talking about life there, we're talking about eternal life with God and his people forever and ever. Those who escape the curse of the law are those who do not seek to fulfill it perfectly and in order to please God, but those who come to God through faith in Christ. And then he uses one more verse in verse 12, quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, to finish up his point. He says, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. The law is not of faith. So some people say, well, doesn't it take faith to obey the law and then therefore earn salvation? Well, ultimately what he says, what gives you a right standing before God and gives you eternal life is not believing the law, but doing the law. This is where we, we trip up sometimes. We think because we believe the law is the means by which we're going to be in a right standing with God, even these false teachers and those who were being led astray. Hey, I, I believe that the law is how I need to be made right with God. Well, if that's the right way that you, that's the way to be made right with God, well, you better do it perfectly. And that's why Paul, quoting Leviticus here, says, the man who does them, who practices them, shall live by them. Who shall live by them? Those who obey the law Perfectly. So if you're going to take that path, be reminded that you need to do so without any error, without any sin. And the problem is we all fall short. We all miss the mark. This morning, we're reminded of the first truth of the gospel. The first truth is that we, you and I, have a desperate need apart from Christ to escape the curse of the law. Apart from Christ, you and I stand condemned. And the good news of the gospel is this. It's an invitation to escape the curse. It's an invitation to be delivered from judgment and spend eternity without God and his people forever and ever. And it's important for us, before we even get to the good news, to tell ourselves how bad our current state is. Apart from Christ, we are hopeless. How do we respond to this invitation of the gospel to escape the curse? This morning, I'd like to suggest first by admitting our need. We must begin by admitting, yes, Lord, I am under the curse of the law, apart from Christ, apart from faith in him. Yes, I don't measure up. Yes, in the, Romans of, in the words of Romans 3.23, all have sinned, and that's me, and fallen short of your glory, have fallen short of your standard. I stand condemned. I stand guilty before a holy God. I am in desperate need of deliverance. So first, first and foremost, we must admit our need. Secondly, we must refuse 
and abandon, trusting in anything other than or in addition to the, the finished work of Christ on the cross as a means of salvation. This morning, you and I are invited to abandon our own ability to pursue goodness and a right standing before God. We all fall short. We all miss the mark. This morning, you and I are invited to abandon our religious activity as a means to find a right standing before God, our obedience to the law, the rituals that we participate in. Membership won't save you. Religious activity of many sorts won't save you. Baptism won't save you. Being a part of a small group won't save you. Only faith in Christ will save you. Uh, There was a a pastor by the name name of Jack Arnold. He passed away in 2005, and he shares a story about his first pastorate, and many in his church were farmers, and one day he visited one of the farmers, and as he was having a conversation with him, this farmer had a picture of the Ten Commandments on his wall, and the farmer at some point in their conversation pointed the Ten Commandments and said, that's all we have. That's all we have in order to find acceptance before God. And you know what the pastor responded to him? He says, do you obey that perfectly? The guy said, I try, but sometimes I fail. And what this guy could not get past was his own self-righteousness. Thinking that he and his own ability could earn his right standing before God when the reality is we have nothing to offer Only to the cross can we cling, trusting in Christ alone and his finished work on the cross. If you're holding on to anything other than Christ alone and Christ crucified and what he accomplished through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, abandon it, refuse it, let it go. Let go of your own goodness and your own ability. Let go of your religion and let go of your ritual and cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is indeed Good news there. And so refuse or abandon any other alternative than faith in Jesus. And then thirdly this morning, I would invite us to thank God for his patience. Perhaps there are some here this morning who, uh, after having heard the gospel for the first time, waited until you actually trusted in Christ. I know I did. Perhaps there are some of you this morning who are still waiting and you're thinking, my day of salvation is tomorrow. But this morning, I want to invite you, before we move forward, to thank God for his patience. And and you can know how, if you want to know how patient God is, if you were to take your right hand and, and put it over your heart, and you were to feel it and listen closely, hopefully you hear right there, it's your heartbeat. And that heartbeat signifies something. It signifies the amazing grace of God. It signifies the fact that the moment that you made your first mistake and you sinned your first sin and you have continued to sin on and on, the grace of God is demonstrated by the fact that your heart is still beating and Christ did not strike you dead the moment you sinned against him and you continue to do just that. Thank God for his patience. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace. As you thank him for that, don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. 
as you have opportunity to minister to folks around this season. I mean, they're playing the music that we sing concerning the good news of the gospel. Now's the time when people will come to various services or come over for Christmas dinner. What an opportunity you and I have, a privilege you and I have to, to, to tell folks about the urgency and the need to come to Christ. The season of Advent is not just about preparing our hearts for the celebration of the first coming of Christ, but eagerly anticipating his second coming. Christ is coming back, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. We need to be ready, and we need to share with as many people as possible to get ready and to be found in Christ so that they are not under the curse of the law. This morning, we need to thank God for his patience. And then fourthly, before we move on to the good news, place your hope in Jesus. Place your hope in Jesus and continue to place your hope in Jesus. This week I was chatting with uh, one of the, the guys um, in Springfield who uh, serves to take care of outreach in their church. And he works with a lot of the homeless in town. And um, he was actually homeless four years ago. And he was sharing his testimony how he had hit rock bottom in addiction in the lifestyle he was in, in homelessness, and you know, especially this time of the year, this is when you feel the most desperate, and you wonder, is life even worth living? And he was feeling a bit suicidal, and he says four years ago, he came to a church, and, and God reminded him there, there was still hope, provided him hope, and it started with Christ, and God got him out of the addiction, God got him out of the homeless lifestyle, and now he's given back to help others, and it all begins with Jesus, and he says there are some people who walk in, and you look into their eyes, and there is no hope in their eyes. They completely hit rock bottom, and he says, what a great opportunity to shine the light and let them know that there's still hope, and it starts with Jesus. This morning, you and I have opportunities to talk to people who may not show it on their faces, who may not be or seem as desperate as they really are, but apart from Christ, we're all desperate. We're all under the curse, and there are people in their desperation who are looking for someone to give them just a little sense of hope, and that hope begins with Jesus. Jesus will not just take care of our spiritual needs. He'll take care of our physical needs and he'll provide us everything we need. You can trust him. It's a reminder that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power continuing to set sinners free and deliver them from any problem that they may experience, addiction, bad habits, anything that you may experience in your life, it all begins with Christ. And you and I have an opportunity to say, Jesus gives us hope. Jesus gives me hope, and I want to share that hope with the lost world around me. So first, the first truth concerning the gospel is the gospel is the good news of the invitation to escape the curse. Secondly, the gospel is the good news to enjoy the blessing of being redeemed in Christ. Now, we just talked about the bad news. Apart from Christ, all of us are under the curse of the law. All of us stand condemned before a holy God. Judgment is upon us apart from Christ. But here is the good news. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's good news this morning. 
If you realize and consider how far from God you and I really were apart from Christ, how desperate we were, how condemned we were, how deserving of death we were, and then it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, man, that is a reason to rejoice and to celebrate and to shout on the rooftops of who Jesus is and what he's done for me and what he'll do for the world if they'll trust in him as their savior and their Lord. It's interesting to say it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It doesn't say Jesus says Christ. Now, some people think Christ is Jesus's last name. It's not. Jesus Christ. Christ refers to the anointed one. It speaks of the Messiah in the Old Testament. It's talking about the promised, uh, the promised anointed prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament. As the anointed prophet, Jesus is the one who declares the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1, Jesus is the anointed prophet. He's the anointed priest. He's the mediator between man and God. If you need to be made right before a holy God, you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And the Christ is the anointed King of kings and Lord of lords who's going to set up his kingdom and he's going to rule and reign forevermore. This is the Christ who has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is the Christ who was promised in the Old Testament all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? And you would think that our Bibles could be really short at that point. God said, that's it. You, I'm done with you. We're starting over. I'm not even going to have a relationship with mankind again. But because of God's love for us, he set forth the good news back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Talking to the serpent, he said, from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the Christ who was foretold. The Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is the Christ who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant that we've already talked about in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. What promises were given to Abraham? You're gonna receive land, seed, your, your, your offspring are going to be as numerous as the sand on the shore and as the stars in the sky. That means too many to count. And thirdly, you are a nation who's going to be blessed. Every nation that blesses you will be blessed. Every nation that curses you will be cursed. And through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the Christ who fulfills that and redeems us from the curse of the law. The Christ we're talking about who redeems us from the curse of the law was prophesied 700 years prior in Isaiah 53 as a suffering servant who would come and bear the sins of humanity let me read that to us. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men. This is the one who was born in a manger, who would grow up to die on a cross, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows 700 years prior. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the Christ who has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and being born in a manger 700 years after this prophecy redeems the Jew and the Gentile 
alike. That is great news this morning. Great news received and great news worth sharing to the ends of the earth and getting excited about around this Advent season and sharing with anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Christ has what he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeemed uh, is a term that's used of those who are in the slave market who are bought out of slavery. You know, if you were looking to buy some products, some vegetables, you go in the first century to the market and you could buy some vegetables, you could also buy a slave and you, you buy that slave and when you purchase that slave, that slave isn't automatically free, that slave becomes yours and you can do with that slave what you like. You can free them or they become your slave. We're told in scripture that Christ has redeemed us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us and delivered us from the curse of the law. He has delivered us from the consequences of our sins. He has delivered us from the judgment of God that we should spend eternity without God and his people forever and ever. And because we have been delivered, we have a reason to rejoice. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have been delivered. We have been set free. And this is a message that is not only ours to hold on to. It's a message that we get to share with the lost as well. How did he redeem us? He redeemed us voluntarily. He gave up his life for us. John 10, 17 to 18 says, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Who took Jesus' life from? Were it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Jesus says, I give up my own life and I take it up. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. He redeemed us from the curse of the law voluntarily. Titus 2, 13 to 14, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He gave us himself willingly that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He did so voluntarily. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on, <coughs> on the cross. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us voluntarily. Secondly, he's redeemed us sacrificially. He gave his life for us. His blood was shed for us. His body was broken for us. He sacrificed his life for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How did he give him to suffer and die on a cross? That anyone who should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law sacrificially and he redeemed us from the curse of the law as our substitute. How? The text continues in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. What we're told here is so important to the central message of the gospel. Christ became our substitute. Christ lived a perfect life so you and I wouldn't have to. 
so that to our account, when we place our faith in Jesus, to our account might be transferred righteousness. God doesn't just take our sin and push it under the rug as an unjust judge might do. But God the Father, as a righteous judge, pours out his righteous wrath on the Son of God who lived a perfect life, and he did so for you and became the curse for you. He became my curse. Doesn't that make it so much more personal? God became my substitute, and he took my place. We're reminded in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Who's just? He is. Who's righteous? He is. Who's unjust? That's us. Who's unrighteous? That's us. And he died in our place that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but be made alive in the spirit. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. No sin. He's perfect. He perfectly fulfilled the law. There was one person who perfectly fulfills the law who lived on this earth, and it's Christ the Lord. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know what happens the moment you place your faith and your trust in Jesus? That's the moment the text, scriptures tell us you are justified. You are declared righteous. You are placed in a right standing with God. Why? Because when you place your faith in Jesus, your sin is attributed and imputed to Christ on the cross who has already paid your debt and he's declared it is finished to die. And when you place your faith in Jesus to your account is credited righteousness. And so when the father looks at you, legally speaking, he says he is justified. She is justified. Clothed in the righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and mine. Christ redeemed us voluntarily, sacrificially as our substitute and also with a purpose. The text continues on and said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Uh, Paul quotes a text from the Old Testament that refers to cursed is the one who hangs on the tree and we know Christ hung on the cross in the Old Testament when you were a criminal and you had broken the law you would be executed and you would be hung on the tree in order to demonstrate God's judgment against you and what Christ did was he became the curse for us and hung on our tree the place where we deserve to be and that's a great benefit what other benefits we receive in verse 14 it says that the blessing of Abraham might come, upon, um, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Three benefits, three blessings, three purposes for why Christ has redeemed you and I from the curse of the law. First, that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. What's the blessing of Abraham? To be justified. To be declared to be in a right standing 
Church, this is such a great blessing that you and I get to hold on to even when we find our faith faltering at times and even though when we mess up sometimes, we can always go back to the truth of the gospel that we have been justified. Now, those who are justified, it's going to bear fruit in our life as we are conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ and we're gonna see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we can always go back to the fact that we've been justified, not on the basis of, of what we have done, <coughs> excuse me, but on the basis of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so first benefit, we have been justified. Secondly, we have been found in Christ. Don't miss that detail there. We have received the blessing of Abraham and are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to have fellowship with a holy God. You and I are born into this world as guilty sinners, deserving of God's eternal wrath and judgment. We are born into this world under the curse of the law because all of us miss the mark and all of us fall short. But as guilty sinners who have been justified, we have been in, found in Christ and we have fellowship with God and his people forever and ever. Isn't that good news? You can tell other guilty sinners as well. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. Come to Christ and experience life in his name. And as they come to faith in Christ, they can be found in Christ as well. And the third benefit is the Holy Spirit who indwells them. This morning, we've been talking about it. We talked about it last week. We're talking about it this morning again. What a blessing you and I have that the Holy Spirit resides in us. We live at a unique time in redemptive history. You take a look at times before Christ, before the, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the people of God and, and indwelt them and filled them. Before that, I mean, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a time and lead them accordingly. And you read about that in the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. But, but we live at a time when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, which means that our effectiveness in order to take the gospel to the end of the earth is unlimited. In Acts 1.8, it says, but you, speaking to his disciples and all followers of Jesus Christ, but you shall receive power. Who has the power? You and I do. You shall receive power through your own ability, through your, your education. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and literally to the ends of the earth. You say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what, how to steer the conversations towards spiritual things. Thank God you don't have to and I don't either. We just need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in each one of us. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. This morning, remind, be reminded of the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not only the invitation to escape the curse of the law, but in to enjoy the blessing of Abraham. You and I have been redeemed from the curse of the law. Four takeaways this morning. The first, as we wrap up our text together, is receive the gift this morning. Receive the gift. To receive the gift, the first step is to admit your need. Admit that you are under the curse of the law apart from Christ. 
Admit your desperate need for Jesus in regards to what he's done for you on that cross. He shed his blood. His body was broken for you in order that you and I might have life. Secondly, believe that Christ is who he claimed to be. The Christ, the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world to redeem sinners from the curse of the law like you and like me. And then thirdly, confess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. So first, receive the gift. Secondly, this morning, enjoy the gift. Enjoy the gift of salvation. How do you enjoy it? Enjoy the fact that you and I have been justified, declared righteous, not because of what we've done, but what Christ has done on our behalf. Hold on to that truth. We've been justified. Hold on to the truth that we've been found in Christ. You want to know who I am? Get to know Jesus because he's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my master. And enjoy the blessing of the Holy Spirit who resides in each of our hearts. Do you need help this morning? I do. God is our helper and he's provided the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Enjoy the gift. You know, when you think about Christmas, as you grow older, when you're, when you're a kid, you look forward to the presents. I mean, you get so excited when the presents come and your face lights up with joy. I remember one Christmas, my, the rest of my family, they got one present, I got two. Man, my face lit up. You know, I got to rub it in a little bit. But as you grow older, you, you love to see the kids and the joy that comes on their face. And the joy on their face is what brings you joy because they're enjoying the gift. How much more the gift that we have received? You know, I have a nephew and my nephew loves riding buses and trains. He's only four years old. Last year, we went to an amusement park out in California, and after a long day, we were riding back in the bus, the shuttle that takes us to our cars, and they asked him, he was three at the time, what's your favorite part of the amusement park? What ride was the best? He said, the bus. <laughs> we said, what bus? He said, the one that's taken me here and there. That's his favorite part of it. Yesterday, my brother sent us a video in our family chat, and they were riding a SkyTrain. And he turns to his mother. You can see his face light up from ear to ear. And he says, are you ready? And his mama says, are you ready? And you can see the joy on this kid's face as he gets to ride the train. How much more joy should light up our face when we know that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law? that you and I have been justified, that we have been found in Christ, that we are recipients of the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy should emanate from our faces and people should be asking, what's up with you and why are you so full of joy? Regardless of the circumstances, enjoy the gift. Thirdly, share the gift. Share the gift. You will have opportunities this season, today, this week, where you will have an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. Seize the opportunity. Consider the urgency. Take the opportunity to invite people to, to different things that are happening at the church or in your home and have the opportunity to, to tell people about Jesus. What a blessing to be a bar, part of a church like ours as we have been talking about outreach this morning and there's various things that we've been doing. I wanna share some of those things. First, uh, 218 Operation Christmas Child boxes that we've been able to pack and they're being sent or will be sent around the world accompanied with the truth of the gospel message of Christ. Let's pray for those boxes. Uh, this holiday season, we've had the opportunity uh, to donate 
2,092, if I got that right, 2,092 socks to the Eugene mission. As people have their feet warmed, they can also have their hearts warmed with the truth of the gospel. (coughs) This past week, it's Thanksgiving, yeah, this past week we had the opportunity to pass out 130 Thanksgiving boxes to families within our community here in Springfield through the various schools, and those boxes go out with the truth of the Bible, pray that people would open up his word. We had a number of people come through as people were praying for them and writing down prayer requests. Let's continue to pray for them, not just that God would meet their physical needs, but their ultimate need for Christ and him crucified. We've got different outreach events going on. They're going to be this weekend going out, passing out hot chocolate and invitations to the musical that's coming up very soon. It's not just a time for us to enjoy the kids, but to enjoy the gospel message through the songs that they sing and the gospel that is shared. What a privilege and opportunity we have as a church to seize the opportunities that we've been given. And lastly, this morning, celebrate the gift. How do we celebrate the gift of Christmas by our worship? We're going to close this morning with Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I pray that you'll take a moment not just to sing the familiar lyrics and the song that you know so well, but reflect on the truths therein, incarnate deity, a deity wrapped in humanity. Consider the beauty and the mystery of the coming. Of Christ. Can we pray this morning? Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the truth of the gospel of Christ, for the invitation to be delivered from the curse of the law, for the invitation to be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and enjoy the blessing of Abraham to be justified by grace through faith in Christ as we uh, join in that blessing alongside of believing Abraham. Father, I pray for our church that you would provide us opportunities to invite people to church or to hear about the faith that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, use us, Lord, to, to, to see the opportunities that are before us. Thank you, Father, for all those Operation Christmas Child boxes we've been able to put together, those Thanksgiving boxes for our outreach team and all that they do, and all those who are going to join in that mission of making Jesus known to the ends of the earth. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, I pray that they can say this prayer in their hearts in a meaningful way. Father, I recognize I need Jesus. Apart from Christ, I stand condemned. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world to die on the cross in my place, to forgive my sins. I make Jesus my Savior, make him my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, thank you. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.